It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, where do we start? From Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Congo, and so many other countries, the media covers the appalling tragedy of war and conflict. But today we're looking at how to build lasting peace, the lessons learned, and examples of remarkable and even successful efforts to end conflicts. Building Peace with Severine Otteser. If you look at the world today, there are one and a half billion people who live in conflict zones under the threat of violence. So we're talking about one people out of five in the entire world populations. 20% of the world population is suffering from violence right now. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? You know, Richard, we've discussed a number of times in this show that globally, your chance of being killed in some kind of violence is much lower today than probably any time in human history. But despite that, there are pockets of such terrible conflict around the world we have systems to try to address this. Donors rush in, peacekeepers are sent, you know, agreements get signed. But all too often in those regions, the situation ultimately reverts to where it was before or sometimes even gets worse. However, some strategies actually have worked to build lasting peace after some of the most bitter wars in some of the most deprived nations around the world. What are they? And why do they matter for those of us who live in relative calm and comfort? Our guest is Severine Otisser, who has traveled around the world to find how peace can grow in the most unlikely places. She's a professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University, and the author of the new book, The Front Lines of Peace. Severine joins us today from New York. Thanks for being on How Do We Fix It? Well, thank you so much, Jim and Richard, for having me. Severine, you've spent years in peace building, working in Congo, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and other countries torn apart by war and other forms of violent conflict. Tell us first about your passion for this work, which goes back many years, doesn't it? It goes back to when I was a very little kid. So that was maybe 40 years ago. Uh, it goes back to my father. My dad was a sound technician for the French radio station for Radio France. 
And uh, he used to travel the world. He went to many different continents. He went to many different conflict zones. And he would always come back home and tell me stories. And he was a marvelous storyteller. He would tell me stories about him helping people who were in the midst of revolution, in the midst of war. And he was the big hero at the time. And so when I grew up, I wanted to be like him. So some of these accounts from your father about faraway places were tall tales. They didn't happen quite like that. Oh, yeah. No, I realized when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old that that my dad, how can I put it nicely, he stretched the truth quite often. <laughs> like, you know, when I was a kid, I thought he was the leader of the Algerian revolution. And I thought that he had saved a lot of people in Iran. And I wanted to be a journalist and to go to conflict zones and to help people. And then you applied to journalism school and, and told them all this. And what did they tell you? <laughs> they told me no. They told me that I had no place in journalism school and that I had a humanitarian vocation. And I was so upset. I was furious. For one year, I couldn't stop ranting and, and saying that they were wrong. And, and then after one year, I realized that they were right. When we read about Congo and the long, tragic series of wars... This leads many of us to think that nothing can be done, that outsiders simply can't help. Are they right? No, they're not. And thankfully, they're not. There are a lot of hopeful stories. The, the entire book, The Front Lines of Peace, is a book about hope, about successful stories. So I tell a lot of stories of people who live in the midst of the most terrible circumstances in the world. In Congo, for instance, there is this little island called Ichwi, where people have managed to build peace and maintain peace for 20 years, although they are in the middle of one of the deadliest conflict since World War II. And in Israel and the Palestinian territories, there is this little village that has been funded specifically to show that Israeli and Palestinian people can live in peace together. So people in conflict zones can do a lot, and it's the same for outsiders, for people like you, Richard, and, and you, Jim, and, and people like myself, and many of the people who are listening to us. Why should we be concerned about this? Why should we, as outsiders, as people who live in, in relative affluence and calm and comfort, be concerned? Well, because we're human beings. And because if you look at the world today, there are one and a half billion people who live in conflict zones under the threats of violence. So we're talking about one people out of five uh, in, in the entire world populations. 20% of the world population is suffering from violence right now. The other thing, let's say that you don't care about the rest of the world. You only care about your own community. The lessons we learn from conflict zones can help us improve the situations around us. In New York, in Texas, in San Francisco, wherever we live, we can use the lessons from conflict zones to decrease violence in our own communities. And that's important because violence has been rising a lot in the United States in the past few years. 
We're going to get into some of those techniques and some of the things you've learned in these conflict zones. But first, let's just take a minute to uh, look at what you're contrasting these techniques with, which is the traditional top-down method of, of humanitarian aid and conflict resolution. You've been part of that in, in your career, and you call it Peace, Inc. How does that system work? So Peace Inc. is the standard, the traditional approach to building peace in war zones. That's the one that uh, most of the people who are listening to us will be very familiar with. That's, for instance, the one that results in big conferences where you have world leaders going to Geneva, to New York, to Addis Abeba, and the kind of piece of papers that are signed and ceasefires that are signed and that fall apart the next day. So Peace Inc. is an approach that's really focused on governments, on state leaders, and that excludes ordinary citizens and grassroots activists. What's life like on the ground for people in these areas, even when you do have, say, peacekeeping forces, often violence and rapes and, and other terrible things continue. How does that happen? Well, it happens because usually when peacekeepers go in, they use the Peace Inc. approach. And the Peace Inc. approach relies on several assumptions that are very misleading and very detrimental. So, for instance, there is the idea that only outsiders have the required skills and expertise to build peace. So it's people like you and I, people who come from abroad, who will resolve the situation for the populations who live in conflict zones. And yet, in many conflicts, foreign peace builders run the show. Can you give an example of, of how that happens, how outsiders who really don't understand the history or culture of the country that's at war with itself end up being more powerful than locals? Of course. Why don't I tell you the story about how my own career in international aid got started? So when I was 23, I was fresh out of graduate school, uh, out of Colombia, and I got my first job as assistant country director for Médecins du Monde, Doctors of the World in Kosovo. So you were assistant country director and you're 23 years old. Not only was I very young, but also at the time when I arrived in Kosovo, I didn't speak Albanian or Serbo-Croatian. I had virtually no knowledge of Kosovo history, politics, and culture. Um, I remember I started reading my first book about the Balkans on the flight there. And given that the flight was very short, I never finished that book. Uh, but I got the job because I spoke decent English. I had two fancy master's degrees. And I had a really good training in political analysis. And also I had some field experience in a variety of post-war places and developing countries. Tell us about your assistant when you were in Kosovo, who knew a great deal more than you did as his boss. Uh, his name was Nerim. Nerim had 20 years experience analyzing political and social issues. He had a tremendous knowledge 
of the Balkans, history, politics, and culture. He had lived in Kosovo all his life, and he was also much older and much wiser than I was. I was so clueless that I didn't know how to really uh, build on Nerim's skills. So eventually, I found a way to keep him busy because that was my job. So I asked him to compile and translate clippings from the local press. And I remember every morning he would post his work on our bulletin board and nobody ever read it. Mm. So it was really such a waste of time, of energy, talent. We're speaking with Savrine Otisser, who is sharing some of the stories in her new book, The Front Lines of Peace. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And now back to our interview with Savrine Otisser. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's talk about the opposite approach, the the ground-up approach instead of top-down and one that harnesses the knowledge of, of local people. One person who really stands out in the book, in fact, she wrote the foreword for your book, is a woman named Lema Gabawi, if I'm pronouncing that right, from Liberia. Tell us a little bit about her. Lema Gabawi is a woman who was living in Liberia, was a single mother, uh, very poor, and she decided one day that she was fed up with seeing so much violence around her. She was fed up with the big men in the capital city who were signing peace agreements and then ignoring them all the times. And so what she did is that she bonded with her neighbors and they created a mass movement, a mass woman movement to ask for peace, to demand peace. And they organized protests and marches. They organized a sex strike. How can we encourage people like that? What can we as outsiders do to support those kind of on-the-ground efforts? There are many things that we can do. Um, Outsiders have a lot to bring to conflict zones inhabitants. They bring funding they bring ideals from elsewhere, ideas of what have worked in other conflict zones, not because the residents of conflict zones want to take the idea and implement it directly, cut and paste in their own countries, but because it gives them a sense of what has worked elsewhere and what they can use to resolve their own conflicts. There's a remarkable story in your book about Luca, 
a young boy who went to fight in a militia in Congo, and how he was helped, ultimately, by the work of an outsider, Vajia Dakur, an Indian-American woman. First, tell us about the boy and his mother. In 2007, uh, uh, in Congo, in the midst of one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II, there was this little boy named Luca who was kidnapped and forced to work for an armed group. For an armed group, for a militia. For a rebel group. And Luca was so small at the time that he couldn't even hold a rifle. So his commanders would march him up front and they would use him as a human shield. And somehow Luca survived and after three years with the armed group, the militia commanders released him and they sent him back home to his mother, Justine. But Luca had trouble assimilating. He hated school. He was often hungry because his mom didn't have much money. And he still believed what his commanders had drilled into him, that the only way to survive was to use violence. So Luca kept running away to join militias. The only time he felt safe was when he had a gun in his hands. He was eight and this was the only life that he knew. And at that time, Vitraya Thakur was a young Indian-American woman who was working in D.C., in Washington, D.C., and she was working for various aid organizations focused on Congo. And Vitraya was growing very uncomfortable with her work because her colleagues used the traditional top-down peace ink approach to peace building. They relied on outsider skills and expertise, and as a result, they ended up harming the very people that they wanted to help. For instance, her colleagues believed that violence in Congo was due to the illegal exploitation of minerals. So they spent their time and efforts advocating for new laws on conflict minerals, but the new regulations cost many vulnerable people their jobs, and these people then had to join armed groups, rebel groups, in order to survive. And so whenever Vitraya traveled to Congo, she decided to ask ordinary citizens what they believed would lead to peace. And eventually, after a couple of years, she decided to try something in the very village where Justin and Luca were living. She partnered with local activists and she organized lengthy meetings and workshops so that the residents would develop their own analysis of the conflicts they face and so that they would decide what the best responses would be. And so the first part of that plan was for Vijaya and her fellow activists to give out $40 each to a few village women, uh, including Justine, who used the money to start small businesses like tailoring and donor shop. So this is an example of micro-lending. It's not only micro-lending because the businesses took off. So soon the participants had enough money to implement the second part of their plans. And the second part of their plans included organizing trainings for the teachers to learn how to curb ethnic violence rather than fueling violence. And so within a few years, this program made a lot of difference in the lives of the villagers. So Luca, for instance, he now had three meals a day 
instead of one. He had shoes without holes, and he had role models who didn't use violence to survive and to gain power. And like Luca, all of the villagers were safer and they were healthier. And let me tell you the one thing that broke Vijaya's heart when, when she, she heard it. Um, one day Vijaya was talking with Justine and, and Justine kept using the word success. It was because Luca had turned 13 and for the first time in his life, he was speaking in the future tense. He had stopped running away all the time and he was making plans, peaceful plans within his community. And Justine said, my son now wants to hold a pencil instead of a gun. So Luca picked up a pencil rather than a gun. Then what happened? Then Vijaya decided to create the Resolve Network. And this network has helped more than 7,000 people over the past 10 years. All of them were people at risk of being recruited by armed group, and actually more than half of them were former combatants like Luca. But not a single person participating in the Resolve programs has either started or gone back to fighting. So Resolve is an example of someone who was an outsider coming in and really listening to local people. So it's this conversation that you're talking about that's so necessary and also a sense of humility of, of saying, yes, we don't have all the answers as donors, as peace builders. Yes, exactly. And that's why I love this story so much, because Vijaya didn't come and impose her beliefs, and that way she's avoided doing more harm than good. Unlike so many people we've seen in conflict zones, Vijaya has been humble, she's been respectful, and she's found a way to put ordinary citizens in the driver's seat. Many of us face types of conflict. We recently interviewed Amanda Ripley, who has written the wonderful book, High Conflict, which I'm sure you know of. And we don't face the kinds of intense situations you see in the Democratic Republic of Congo. What can we do to learn from these methods and start speaking in the future tense again? Okay. So there are three things that uh, all of us can do to help decrease violence in our own communities. The first one is that we can develop informal personal relationships with our opponents, uh, whether we're talking about cultural, religious, political opponents. So in the front lines of peace, I talk about zones of peace where people have managed to, to decrease violence. And a lot of the residents have done that by developing informal personal relationships with their opponents, by listening. And it goes back to the podcast episode you did about high conflict, by really listening, by talking, and by bonding over shared interests. So for us, we can use sport clubs, religious groups, art associations, trade unions. These are all good places that we can use to start building common ground with our opponents. The second thing we can do is that we can use the specific elements of our own local cultures to help decrease tensions. 
So in the front lines of peace, I show how the residents of Ijwi and Somaliland have used their specific customs and beliefs to prevent shootings and killings. And uh, I also have an example from the United States, from the south side of Chicago. You know the story of Mothers Against Senseless Killings? It, it's a lovely story. It's the story of women who were so fed up with seeing violence and shootings around them that they decided to hang out on street corners. They brought folding chairs and they sat on them for hours and hours. And the thing is that in Chicago, nobody wants to kill someone in front of their own mothers. So the number of shootings and killings in their communities has decreased a lot. And the third thing is supporting grassroots associations. So local associations with time, money, efforts, you know, whatever we can spare. But it doesn't only happen in war zones. It happens at home as well. You know the organization Cure Violence? They are fantastic. They're a bottom-up organization based in Chicago, in the United States. And they work in dozens of cities in the United States. And they've managed to reduce shootings and killings in more than 20 U.S. cities by more than 73%. And they've done that by relying on the same kind of bottom-up, insiders-led approach that we've been talking about today. You share some bedrock principles in successful peacebuilding, wherever that's needed. Ask, not assume. Follow, not lead. Support, not rule. Why is that approach so important? Because it works. Because it's the only thing that works, and also because that's the right thing to do. Thank you, Sabrine Otisser. Thank you so much, Jim and Richard, for having me. It's been really a pleasure to be on your show. Great. Thank okay, you. Great. Thank you again. Sabrine Otisser, the name of her book again is The Front Lines of Peace. Richard, you've got a recommendation this week that's a little more general than usual. Yes, escape. Seek out comedy. Smart, funny escapes that enable us to laugh as well as perhaps be depressed about the state of our world. Jim, on an earlier episode of How Do We Fix It, you mentioned the wonderful comedy on Netflix, Never Have I Ever, which I really enjoyed. We've also both had fun watching the French series Call My Agent, and now I'm adding another great show to our comedy arsenal. It's called Better Things, and it stars and was co-created by comedian Pamela Adlon in this remarkable show. She's a single mom, a working actor who's raising three daughters in Los Angeles. Better Things is hilarious. You can find Better Things on FX. Next, our conversation. So, Jim, The Front Lines of Peace, this book that we've been talking about, it tells some stories of, of both ordinary and extraordinary people and local groups that are confronting desperately sad situations, violence in, in their communities. And I think what Severine is saying is that there are successful examples of peace building, despite the headlines, um, that there are countries that once were at war that now were at peace, and that uh, 
there are better ways very often of finding peace than those that are backed by the international elite, by big donor nations and by large peace conferences. Yes. And not that there isn't sometimes a place for those, but, and I don't think that's what she's arguing exactly, but the argument she's making, if you'll indulge me a bit, is really essentially it's a conservative argument. In conservatism, there is an assumption that people know best what their own interests are, that they understand their community and their lives better than some faraway expert or some political leader. And therefore, when possible, it's always best to leave power with local people, let them make their own decisions as much as as possible. Instead of trying to impose programs from the top down, you're begging me to disagree with you because I think this is something that radicals and and local efforts, often progressives, also believe in local bottom-up organizing, community organizing, which also has its roots not only in conservative values, but also in radical, sometimes left-wing values, too. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and we're a production of Davies Content. Find out what we can do for you with podcasting and also media training at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.